Welcome to the Aurora Cornerstone Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. We hope today's message is an encouragement to you. Revelation chapter 6, verse 1. Here we go. Let's start. I watched, John said, I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Last week we talked about who is worthy. Who's worthy to open the seals? It's the last will and testament. Who's worthy? No one's worthy. No one can be found worthy from the beginning of time to present into the future. No one is worthy but the Lamb. The Lion of the tribe of Judah and the Lamb of God. He is worthy. He's the only one worthy. Otherwise, we would be locked into judgment with no recourse. We would be locked into the sickness of hell in this world and everything that comes with it, including death, with no way out ever. That's pretty discouraging. So that expression, what's the point of life? Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Then that would be true. Because there would be no point. You live for today, die, and forever gone, gone to the dust. Who really cares? Solomon struggled with this as he got through Ecclesiastes. Maybe one day we'll do a study in Ecclesiastes. He went through Ecclesiastes and he kept saying, I kept looking to try to find meaning and it all was meaningless. Everything under the sun was meaningless. And it was meaningless because you have to get your eyes above the sunset to find meaning. And this was the the despair when John looked and said, and he began to weep, no one is worthy. To open the No one is worthy to stop the cycle of sin that keeps rolling through until it comes to that part, but there is one who is worthy, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. He is worthy. We sang that song. Thank you, Daniel, for teaching that song. Um, uh, somebody had been recommending that song here in our church for a while, and we got the email, and we were saying, you know what? We, that's a good song. And so... Uh, uh, Daniel just jumped a hold. He, he's good that way. He just grabs a song and says, man, this is a life-giving song right here. And, and it was. Jesus. Jesus. Power of Jesus. And so, really, that is revelation. That is, that's the flow of what God is doing in this entire book. Book of Revelation is not to figure out the chronology of events for things to come as much. Now, if you're into that, eat your heart out. But it's filled with anxiety because just as much as you're fin- an emphatic about something, chances are you're still 50% wrong because we don't know for sure. It's full of symbolism and ebbs and flows of times and governments and interpretations of things. It wasn't meant to rack your brain to try to figure it out. It was meant for some fundamental reasons. We talked already three weeks. Invite you, if you weren't here, get it on the podcast. I'm going to sum it up this way. I'm going to read Revelation 6... One, I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a loud voice like thunder, Come. So in a quick review, Revelation is a handbook. Revelation is a handbook. It's a handbook on worship. Jesus, you can find his love anywhere. There is no place you can go to escape the love of Jesus. With Jesus, you can rise above every circumstance. Yes, whatever circumstance you face. Jesus really is closer than you think. And Jesus' hand is upon you. 
And he is your security. Jesus shares the things that beset the church today. He used it in the context of seven literal city churches of the day. But we can bring it and tailor it down to four things. And these things are as relevant today as if he, you know, listened to our newscast. Number one, what besets the church? Number one, when we substitute activities for priorities. We need to have first things first. Secondly, when we tolerate impurity, we tolerate it. We don't deal with it. The third thing that besets the church today is believing the lie of material successfulness. That to be successful is money or possessions or land or power. And, and fourthly, fourth thing that besets the church is removing God's grace and mercy. When we believe the power of people or the power of institutions or the power even of platform office in the ecclesiastical circles, instead of that you as a child of God, a 10-year-old downstairs who loves Jesus with all their heart holds the key to the kingdom of heaven. There's where the power is. Those who enact what God has said in his word and who live it. It has nothing to do with platform. And third thing, Jesus is worthy to open the scroll and complete God's salvation plan. Some interpreters understand the opening of the first seal in the opening of the seals as the beginning of the seven-year tribulation. It's a future time of unprecedented suffering, judgment leading up to the second coming of our Lord. Others believe the seals describe the final three and a half years. So the seven seals are actually the three and a half years of the seven-year tribulation. It's called the Great Tribulation. Still others see the seals as the beginning of God's judgment revealed in successive series that we've already been in the series of the seals. The purpose of our study here is to recognize that there is a period of time of tribulation. And we, growing up in our eschatological studies, have looked at pre-tribulation, mid-tribulation, or post-tribulation. I've had, I've been a part, not, I've not facilitated it. As a matter of fact, I didn't enjoy any of it. A part of very lively debates of those who held a very strong position in one of those three, pre, mid, or post. There are entire denominations built around the pre, mid, or post-tribulations. In other words, we're going to be gone before the seven years. We're going to be taken in the middle of the seven years, or we will withstand the seven years, and the church will be taken at the end of the seven years. And um, uh, very lively debates, uh, in, in so much that <laughs> I had to leave because I thought blows were going to take place. The person was so animated, a man of God, so animated to change my position that I came to realize that this person began to crusade in something that we just, if, if God found it so important to be that specific, he would have laid it out a whole lot clearer. Both Old and New Testament, he would have laid it out so much clearer. But it, the point wasn't figuring it out. And that's why I believe, I've been saying, that the point is, is we need to behold Jesus' redemptive power, not only to John on the island of Patmos, but Jesus' redemptive power 
to every person who followed John from the island of Patmos, and that includes me and you here today who are followers of Jesus. So with confidence, I say, I am ready should Jesus come today. I'm going to say that again. With confidence, Wayne Lucas says, I'm ready if Jesus comes today. What's today? November the 13th? If Jesus comes November the 13th, I'm ready to be with my Lord. I'm not saying that from a position of cockiness. I'm saying that from a position of readiness. I am ready for my Lord to come. Should he come today? And I expect he could. However, I am also prepared, should Jesus not come today, until a greater measure of his retributive judgments are realized. In other words, if he withholds until judgments come, I'm prepared. So there's two things I'm going to invite you to enter in on. Be ready and be prepared. Now this is so, I believe this is very key. Because I think this is where often the mark is missed. I don't mean the mark of the beast. This is where we often miss it. Is we are so convinced that we will escape all judgment that we're not prepared for difficult times. We're all a bright audience here. Much of the world is suffering for Jesus right now. I mean, really suffering. I'm not talking about being snubbed at work because you're a follower of Jesus. I'm talking about physically suffering for Jesus. There are those of you in this audience right here who've got loved ones in a nation right now. If they were to stand up and proclaim Jesus as their Lord would die. Is that not true? There are those, in the, there are those here. There are those in my Wednesday night. We pray for them. There are nations represented here. If you stood up for Jesus, you would die. There are those, over 200,000 according to martyrs, over 200,000 believers, followers of Jesus. We don't know the numbers for sure because how do you know these numbers? Over 200,000 believers in Jesus who are in prison right now only because they proclaim Jesus as Lord. Ask if they're suffering. Ask if they're suffering. For us to believe that there is not already suffering taking place is to be extremely naive. We need to move outside the context of where we are here. And there is tremendous suffering around the world. I've got loved ones, not in my family, but dear ones to me as we serve in Cuba. Dear ones who suffer for Jesus in the country of Cuba because they've stood up for Jesus. I've heard testimony. I've visited them. I've gone to their churches. I've seen what has happened. I've helped some get out of the country. So, there's much judgment. So to believe, here's the key. I am ready should Jesus come today. I'm ready. Are you ready? Here's the question. Are you ready for Jesus to come today? If we think it's way down the road, then you're not ready. He will come as a thief in the night. Either by, by your life being taken or he will catch you away. But are you ready? Secondly, are you also prepared should he not come for a while? And you go through judgment. Not judgment of your sins, but the judgment of sin on this world. Ready and prepared. I believe those have to marry in what we are doing presently. So that's why there are some who are just saying, oh, you know, you've heard it. I, I've heard it. That, um, oh, Jesus is going to come. Don't worry about that. Jesus is going to come and we'll all be gone. Well, a number of those people, they died and Jesus didn't come. And others, their children, didn't, weren't prepared to follow times of difficulty and hardship. We need to be ready. We need to be prepared. Prepared 
for difficult times. This session today is about being prepared for difficult times, should the difficult time. I'm going to talk about the rapture very briefly because, again, I expect he could come any day. But I'm prepared. I'm prepared if he doesn't. And it would be, I will stand before God as your pastor. I will stand before God and I will be given an account if I did not prepare you for difficult days. You need to be prepared. Should his retributive judgment withstand for a while longer and we go into a time of judgment as a people and as a nation. That would be, some of it would be on me if I never prepared you. I believe there's pastors that's on them who didn't prepare their congregations, who didn't prepare their people, that you could go through very difficult times and you need to know what it is to serve Jesus in the times of difficulty because if we think we're simply going to escape it all, then we haven't prepared our children, we haven't prepared ourselves, we haven't prepared the people. It's almost like we locked ourselves down and we're waiting for Jesus to come. That's wrong. Be ready and be prepared. I think that's, man, you got, you, got your, you got your ties worse this morning already. I could just leave it there because that is so key to the book of Revelation. Much more can be said. I'll, I'll keep going. So I want to share three points. Number one, it's a wake-up call. We have moved on to chapter 6. We're going to slide over to chapter, really up to next week. I want to close it down. I need to close it down so we can get ready for Christmas. So next week will be our last one. I'm going to talk about the glorious wedding with the Lord. I want to talk about that next week. Next week's a happier week than this one. Okay, so come back next week, make sure. But, but, we do have to slow it down, slip it into first, and go through these chapters. I'm not going to go chapter by chapter. I'm going to hit, I believe, the highlights of this. First of all, when we get to chapter 5, chapter 6, we move on as the seals are opened up, the scrolls are opened, the judgments take place. These, these are a wake-up call. And you know that because you have the Lord calling to John. He says, come and look. Come and look. Okay, let's go back to the text again. Chapter 6, verse 1. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a loud voice, come. And he invites him to look. Come take a look. Uh, and two things. See, up to now, there's been a lot of worship, a lot of worship. Worthy is the Lamb, holy is the Lamb. You are worthy of all honor, blessing to the Lamb. A lot of worship. There's been a lot of worship up to now, but when we come here, we are moving. He's saying, come, I need you to take a look at something here while you're worshiping. Take a look. There's more to the scene of revelation than worship. It's a scene of mission. You worship, but you're on a mission. Chapter 6 on in is the, chap, is the mission. We have a mission in front of us. Don't sit around and you know, wait for the coming of Jesus. You're on a mission. Get active in your mission. There's worship that leads to mission. He's saying something is going to happen in your world. Take a look at what's ahead. And the seals begin to break and we behold a series of things. It's a wake-up call to not only worship, but be doers and people, active, doing God's work. You can't but see that over and over, that the fields are ripe unto harvest. Pray the Lord of the harvest for laborers, for laborers. The problem is we need people. The problem is, is we need witness. The problem is, is we need to advance the message of Christ is Lord. And unless somebody, how can they know? Unless somebody tells them, how can someone tell them if nobody goes? How can they go if we're not sent? 
So he's saying, go, you're being sent. So there's a place of we move from the place of worship. When I get up off of my knees, when I bring my hands down from worship, then I need to turn around and go into the mission field and be Christ to the people around us. Share my faith. Demonstrate God's goodness and love. Be the people of mission. Coupling worship and mission together is when we begin to flow Revelation chapter 6 onward. The first seal is opened in verse 2, and it's a picture of a white horse going forth with a crown on his head, a bow in his hand, conquering and to conquer. You would note that verse 9, also the fifth seal, relates back to the first seal, and that is that victory comes with the price, and the price is he who follows Christ must take up his cross and follow him. I'm going to say all six seals of the seven is around that foundational statement. He who follows Christ must take up your cross and follow him. In other words, if you want to follow Jesus, you must first lay down your life. That's being prepared. I got to lay down my life. Now think about it. I must lay down my life now. There are things that we are holding our life more valuable than the things of the kingdom. And we need to lay down our life, my own pursuit for my flesh, pursuit to be seen. Not that I can't succeed, but I first make the kingdom my first pursuit. It's the first seal. This is a people who do not love their own lives, but unto death for Jesus. And the seals represent each one. The second seal is opened, a fiery red horse. There's no peace on earth, more death. The third seal is open, there's famine, more death. The fourth seal is open, there's death everywhere by every means. It's horrible. The fifth seal is open, souls of those who've been slain because of the cross. The sixth seal is open, cosmic earthquake, more death. There, more death, death, death. I come back to the main point of Revelation. If you want to follow Christ, you must first lay down your life as the purpose to understand it. And then we come to Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. And after this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, praise God, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches, palm peace, palm branches in their hands. Verse 10, and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And then down to verse 13 to 17, the question is asked, where did these people come from? Every tribe, nation, people, and language standing with white robes holding them. Where did they come from? And the answer, they have come from the great tribulation. They have overcome. Praise God. They have overcome. You know, when I look down, I get excited as a pastor. I wish you could see it. And I look down on a Sunday morning like this Sunday morning, and I look at a bunch of overcomers. Got to overcome through Christ. And so who is, who are these people? They're those that overcome in that tribulation, in the time of great suffering, who, if you want to follow Christ, you have to lay down your life. You have to lay down. It didn't say you want to lay down. It says those who follow, you have to have already laid down your life to be a follower of Jesus. So we talk of the first point. It's a wake-up call. Come and see. 
worship, you have a mission. Which leads us to the second point. I didn't know what to call it, so I just called it. We need to be rapture ready. Rapture ready. There are over 180 references to the return of Jesus in the New Testament alone. That's a lot. Over 180 references. Jesus is coming for a people. So do you think it's important? <laughs> okay. Repetition means, you know, they didn't have big letters, bold letters where we do today. It, they just repeat it. And it was repeated over and over and over and over. This is not our final stage here today, my brothers and sisters. This is not the final stage. This is not the final scene. The, scene, the final scene is coming. We are in a very temporary moment of eternity. But what we do in this temporary moment signifies what happens for eternity. When your mom and dad conceived you, they beget something that would last for eternity. Unlike, unlike, you know, our pets or animal kingdom, when God breathed into us in his likeness and in his image, he set in motion a soul that would be eternal. And in that, we are eternal beings. And we need to be rapture, rapture ready. John 14, 1, Jesus said, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me, Jesus said. For in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I like this part. Jesus said, I'm going there to prepare a place for only pastors. To prepare a place for the Jews only. Come on, we know better than To prepare a place for you. He's talking to all followers of Jesus. I am going there, Jesus said, to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, which you can guarantee he is, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You can bank on that one. This is a personal promise to every follower of Jesus. It's not everybody who claims Jesus. It's not everybody who says, Lord, Lord. Jesus himself said there will come a day, there will be those who will say, Lord, Lord, did I not go to church? Did I not read the Bible? Did I not act like a Christian? And he said, I don't know you. Because you did not deny yourself, take up the cross and follow me. I don't know you. There are many who will stand before and they will not be accepted. Not because they're not, you know, perfect. It has nothing to do with perfection. It has everything to do with living a life of forgiveness and sacrifice and laying it down for Jesus, him being first of our lives. It's a personal promise. Heaven is a prepared place for a prepared people. Rapture means catching away. It comes from a Greek word, harpazo, and it carries three fundamental ideas. Rapture. Yeah, you won't find the word rapture, but you will find the word catching away. And it means seized suddenly, transported, and rescued. See suddenly, the picture that describes it is like an eagle comes and plucks the play, or plucks the prey. It's very suddenly, unexpected, quickly, snatches. The second thing is transported, transported into another setting. He says, I will bring you to a place I prepared you. I will transport you into another setting. And the word rescue, the third part of harpezo, is to seize and rescue from imminent peril. It actually, the word rapture is connected to the root word raptor. And I don't mean the Toronto raptors. 
I mean the actual idea, the animal, the raptor. And so the raptor as an animal will quickly snatch the prey again. The idea here is the suddenness. They're just there. They're just there. See suddenly, transported, rescued, rapture. We need to be rapture ready. When the rapture takes place, people will not be marveling like you saw in the first episode of Left Behind. People will not be going, oh, if I had only called on the name of the Lord. The Bible actually tells us that when the rapture takes place, people will be cursing God when the rapture takes place. There won't be large out repentance. They'll curse God. They'll curse the God of heaven. Revelation chapter 8 speaks of the seventh seal being opened, the power of prayer. And it begins the seven trumpet judgments, which take us right through to chapter 12, judgments. So I'm flipping the pages. I'm now at chapter 12. The woman, the child, and the dragon. Three characters. The woman, the child, and the dragon. Chapter 12, verse 1. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. The woman. Scholars believe, and it's, it really does truly make sense, the woman has been the people that God has called to bear the child through the millennials, the nation of Israel, the Hebrew people and now the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel is very significant in God's plans. Has been, is today. We just had an election take place in Israel. Now, now you just got back in. But the nation, very strategic, very strategic. All world events look and will continue to look to Jerusalem. Jerusalem plays, Israel plays a key part in the end times. Those who visited Israel possibly have been up on the Mount, Jezreel. You looked into the valley where the valley of the prediction of Armageddon will take place. A great battle will take place in the valley. In that valley, there have been over 22 major battles. It's one of the most fertile valleys in the world. And our Jewish translator told us one of the reasons it's so fertile is because there's been so many dead bones and blood shed in the valley. 22 major battles already. In the valley of what one day will be the valley of the Armageddon. I found it intriguing, still do, that in the middle of the valley you will see a, an airstrip. There's an underground Israeli, underground, did you hear, you heard me right, underground Israeli airstrip. You can see the strip, planes are underground that come out of the valley to this day. Israel is a key part to God's plan, always has been. I want to talk about the woman. Because the woman is Israel. And throughout history, from the time of Abraham, when God began to set in motion his redemptive plan, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the Jews have always been the focus of Satan's animosity. Satan also has great animosity for any who claim the Messiah to be Jesus. He has equal animosity, and of you here today, myself, we are at the pointed end of the enemy's spear with his hatred when we declare Jesus as our Messiah. It's not popular. It's something that's mocked and ridiculed. 
Uh, I could go on. I was just reading a news article. I don't know if it was this morning or last night. Again, just how they, just the news article was just mocking those who are faith followers in Jesus and, and, and just how openly it's done uh, in our media. The dragon's animosity is towards anything that represents God's giving of his life through Jesus, the woman. The woman, Revelation 12, 1. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, crowned with 12 stars on her head. The woman, there's a child. The woman are those who've carried the message of Christ through the ages. The child. Revelation 12, 5. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. As Jesus came, there was an immediate effort by the adversary who recognized what was happening. From the inception of Jesus, when Mary conceived, we call it the Immaculate Conception, conceived by the Holy Spirit, there was hope that she would be, her life would be taken or at least a miscarriage. Didn't happen. Then there was lack of room for Jesus to be born in the inn, but he was born. Then the king of the day determined to slay the child and a horrible dark period in Israel's history, the brutal slaying of many male babies trying to find the one. The adversary focusing on the child. You got to stop the child. All prophecy weighs on that child. Now, some of you, interestingly enough, maybe saw back a few years ago the film, The Passion of the Christ. I did, yes, and I even saw it multiple times. For the most part, I thought it was, I thought it was a good movie. You can have your take on it, and that's fine. There was a scene at the end of the movie. The scene was a perplexing scene. I remember contemplating the scene. The scene was a depiction of Satan with a demonic child. Remember the play. Satan with the demonic, demonic child. So what did the baby in that scene with Satan represent? Well, if you remember the prophecy of the beginning of the age, that the Son of Man would crush the head of the serpent through his offspring. That was given in Genesis. The Son of Man would crush the head of the serpent through his offspring. Satan understands that. Therefore, the scene was a scene of mockery because Jesus had gone to the cross, his life had been taken, and now Satan's there with a demonic child saying, see, there is no Messiah. The rest of the race is birthed demonically. And it was a mockery of everything that was prophesied. And yet, and yet, I like the way the story unrolled. We know it, biblically. Yet Jesus rose from the dead. He triumphed over, seen by over 500 people. 500 people, I'm going to say 500 people plus the 120 in the upper room. 620 people Jesus was seen by, not mass hallucinations, in different settings, different places, different times, different languages. And Jesus was seen, and he exists. He spoke to the people. We know he exists because of changed lives in Jesus today. There's so much evidence. So the prophecy was fulfilled. Jesus did survive, went to the cross, rose from the dead, and ascended to be with the Father. And really, it is up to us whether or not we will experience the rule of his love or the rule of his rod. 
The rule of his love is I love you, Jesus. I, I, I surrender my life to you and to experience the rule of his love. If I choose not, if I choose not, then I said last week, if you play with fire, you will be burned. There is a consequence to sin. Sin has its own consequence, and it is brutal. It is torment forever. Or the rule of his rod, the rule of his judgment. I'm going to recommend the rule of his love. Can I, can I recommend that? Then the rule of his rod. There's a child, there's a woman, there's a child, and there's the dragon. In verse 3, then another sign appeared in heaven, and an enormous red dragon with seven heads, ten horns, seven crowns on its heads. This terminology would also appear in the very next chapter. The dragon describes the source of all evil, Satan himself. The source of all evil manifesting itself in our world in different ways. It speaks of evil governing forces. Note, this enormous red dragon with seven heads, ten horns, seven crowns. It ex the experience is over every political system on the globe. We've seen it. Evil governing forces. The forces, evil forces behind the scenes of kings and prime ministers and presidents and dictators. The scenes behind, behind the thrones of power, moving things around like puppets. A horde of events taking place bigger than I think any one of you or myself would ever want to imagine. The scenes of the dragon that take place even to this day. We're told two things about the dragon. Number one, we're given his identity. Verse 9, the great dragon was hurled down. Here it is, that ancient serpent called the devil. We're given his identity. Then in chapter 13, verse 14, observe secondly, he deceived the inhabitants of the earth. I want to say this, Jesus spoke of the most drastic thing to happen to people throughout the era of post-resurrection where you and I live today. The most drastic thing, the most drastic thing is this, is the deception of our minds. The worst thing that can happen to mankind is not disease in this world. The worst thing that can happen to mankind is not climate problems. The worst thing that can happen is not even death. The worst thing that can happen is to be deceived about who God really is. And there's huge deception about who God really is. Throw a plethora of stuff out there and people will believe it all. And now we don't know what to believe. Prediction. He will deceive the inhabitants of the earth. That is the ultimate, the ultimate deception. Jesus was showing John here the big picture, that people were going to go through the same thing that John was going through. John was banished to the island of Patmos. John was suffering for the cause of Jesus. And the big picture was John was saying, it's going to happen. You need to remember that whatever your struggle, there is a deliverer. John is saying, whatever way you end up dying, and we will, unless we are raptured, we will all die. Eventually, there is eternal life. We must remember. I'm going to say that again. Whatever your struggle, there is a deliverer. However you die, there is eternal life. Never forget it. Never forget it. That's why. We have such an elaborate book, Revelation. 
There are casualties in battle. Every battle has casualties. There is no battle without casualties. There are many who are in the midst of struggle, appear to overcome. But their being overcome might be temporal. That is why Jesus says, don't fear him who is able to take the body only. Don't give up because you suffer for a season. Hold on. Stand firm. There is deliverance, even in eternity. I want to conclude with the four things. Here they are. Number one, there are no quick victories in a long war. And so chapter, really chapter five that we've been doing, we're going right over to chapter 18. Next week, again, we're not going to be talking about this because I don't want to talk about it anymore. But in these chapters right here, there is no quick victories in a long war. I am ready should Jesus come today. I'm prepared if he doesn't. I hope you will say that. I hope you will live that. I am ready should Jesus come. I'm rapture ready. Oh, Lord, come quickly. The Spirit and the bride say come. But I'm prepared that if I suffer for Jesus and my brothers and sisters suffering for Jesus today around the world, I will stand with them. I will pray for them. I will come alongside and do everything. Remember, it's not about worship. It's also about my mission to help. But are we so blind to believe here in Canada in the United States, that we are exempt from judgment. Somehow we should escape it. I'm prepared. I lay my life down today. If you say, well, I'll wait until then, and then I'll turn to Jesus. I'm going to tell you right now, if you don't turn to Jesus in your time of affluence, you will not turn to Jesus when you're put to the test to deny him. Peter wouldn't, and he walked with him for three years. Neither will you and I. We live and we turn to Jesus now. We make that decision. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is the power of salvation and I will be bold in my faith to Jesus. It's a call to wake up. It's a call to be rapture ready. It's a call that we are a part of the woman's child that because we believe in the Messiah, we are at the brunt edge of our adversary and he will do everything to stop a rebirthing through your life into somebody else's life. It never stops. Until the deliverer either comes or we go to be with him, with the Lord forever. There are no quick victories in a long war. Secondly, there are frequent foretastes of ultimate outcomes. What am I saying? That even though we're in a long battle, beloved here, enjoy the victories we do have. I rejoice that you, how many here this morning, you'd lift your hand I'm a follower of Jesus. How many testify to that today? Go ahead, lift your hand. I rejoice in you. And if you didn't lift your hand, I rejoice in you too because I'm calling you a pre-convert. You're coming to Jesus. But I rejoice in you because it's a foretaste of glory divine. I rejoice when somebody gets healed of a sickness or their back or, or something took place. I rejoice we were praying for a sister here this morning whose who's loved one was in the hospital yesterday and God brought her out of the hospital. I rejoice in those. Those are the victories of today. I rejoice when a family member comes to Jesus, when my son comes to Jesus, when my daughter comes to Jesus, your son, your daughter, your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, whoever it is, I rejoice. Those are the victories. Rejoice. Here's my point. There are frequent foretastes of the ultimate outcome. We will continue. So rejoice in those. Dance before the Lord. Lift up your voice and praise him. 
It's not all doom and gloom. Quite the contrary. We have much to rejoice in the Lord. Thirdly, there are no cheap price tags on triumph. Because the Bible says they overcame him by the what? By the blood of the Lamb. Every victory I have today was because blood had been shed. Every victory I have is because blood was shed by the Lamb. Jesus paid it all. I owe him a debt of gratitude. So when I rejoice with my victory, when I dance before the Lord, and I should, it came at a great price. Horrific price. Never forget how great a price has been acted for every victory we see today. And number four, he who is in you, finish it, is greater Everything that comes against you today, that comes against you this week, that comes against you this month, this year, anything that comes against greater is he that's in you. Christ in you, Emmanuel, God with us. Greater is he. And he gives you the victory to overcome. This whole book is about him who overcomes, she who overcomes, I will give. As we are overcomers, We see from Revelation chapter 2, the church in Smyrna, Jesus said suffering would take place for 10 days. 10 is a picture of a test. It's also a picture of the fullness of time. Time goes on. And as time goes on, overcome. Overcoming is not for the weak. Overcoming is not for me to do it now and I give up later. Overcoming is to quit in the race. It's not that. Overcoming is to get to the end. I'm ready should Jesus come today. And I expect he could. But I'm prepared if he doesn't and I go through judgment. I will be an overcomer in Jesus. And it starts today. It starts with everything that stands against Jesus today. I overcome it in Jesus. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And he promises to those who suffer through it, I am the one who has the keys of death and hell. And he holds the key. (laughs) Praise God. Wake up. Strengthen what remains. Jesus is coming again. Make no mistake. He is coming again. So Father, I thank you, God. God, we just worship you. Go ahead and just lift your hands. Would you just worship the Lord? Just just worship him. We would be amiss if we just don't give God the praise and glory right here. Father, thank you, God, for so great a salvation. Thank you, God, for so great a salvation. Lord, we worship you, Lord. We worship you, Jesus. Oh, be magnified and glorified. Thank you, Lord. Jesus, there is no greater name. No greater name. Hallelujah. I love you, Lord. I love you, Lord. Praise you, Lord. Praise you, Lord. Glory to your name. for listening to the Aurora Cornerstone podcast. Remember to subscribe. For more information about our church and our ministries, visit auroracornerstone.ca.